Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ross. Ahoy, friends. Thank you for tuning into Truth and Justice. You are listening to the Friday Follow-Up for Season 12, Episode 48, Javi's Testimony. This week, Bob broke down and summarized the testimony of the state's key witness, Javier Garcia Jr. Javi's testimony has answered some questions while raising more. I'm in studio with Bob while Janet is off at sea. We have our amazing production manager and co-host of True Crime Binge, Erica Cantor, who is joining us to round out this trio. After a quick break, the three of us are going to get into your listener questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us both at home and right now live on YouTube. As Zach mentioned in the intro, we are sans Janet today. She's out on a very important assignment, but we have a great guest host today. For those of you that listen to True Crime Binge, you are very well aware of who this young lady is. She is our production manager and the co-host of True Crime Binge. Let's face it, Erica, you do 99% of the work for that show, and all I do is show up and talk. Hey, I'm grateful when I don't have to think of questions on the fly like you do, so. You're <laughs> <laughs> right. We're, we got a good a, a good yin and yang thing going on there, but that is the voice of Erica Cantor. If you want to hear more from Erica Cantor, just check out True Crime Binge. She, she's actually on the air with me there. She co-hosts there and, as I said, does all the work. So um, Janet's gone this week. And I thought Erica would be the perfect fill-in so that you didn't just have to listen to me and Zach talk to each other for an hour. Because Lord knows we don't want that. Well, I'm honored to be here, and I'll do my best to live up to Janet's excellence. <laughs> let's let's just not say her name anymore. She's, she's not <laughs> yeah, here today. Yeah, forget her. She's gone. She's out to sea. No, Janet. We love Janet, and Janet will be back next week. Uh, we're gonna get. We got a bunch of of listener questions. We've given Erica little to no instruction on how this is going to go so i'm sure she's going to do better than we will and uh but uh other housekeeping thing if anybody is interested and is around the southwest michigan area so indiana illinois anywhere in michigan even the western part of ohio um zach and i just booked a an encore show for our uh our comedy show we did that comedy on the hill in baroda michigan a few weeks ago it was a packed out, sold out, standing room only show. Went really well. They asked us back. 
So we just today put up on our, our website, if you go to bobruffevents.com, there are tickets available to that show. So you guys get to hear it first before we put it out anywhere else. So if you want to come, didn't get a chance to come last time, there are tickets available. They're just 20 bucks. So you can go to bobruffevents.com and uh, watch me and Zach tell some funny stories along with two other comedians that will be there. And do we have any other any other housekeeping stuff? Not that I'm aware of. All right. So with that, first things first, Erica, this is where we put you on the spot. You listened to the episode. What did you think about uh, Javi's testimony? I thought it was very interesting. I saw a lot of activity on the Facebook page before I had actually had a chance to listen to the episode. So I knew it was going to be there was going to be a lot in there. Um, and I was really grateful for this opportunity to like take the time to sit down and listen to the episode in detail and like take notes and follow my trains of thought and things like normally I don't have the time to do. And I the one of the big things right off the bat that I found really interesting was just the when just really when Javier mentioned or admits to being friend zoned, because I think that was mm-hmm. such a topic of debate for such a long time. Like, did he really have feelings for her or were they just really good friends? Was she, you know, leading him on, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like at least from Javi's perspective now, we know, you know, sort of what he was actually feeling. So I thought that was just kind of a small, interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I talked a lot about how he kind of admitted that he was lying to police about being there during that one conference. But there was a lot of stuff in there like that where he, you know, when you look at the evolution of his police statements where he's like, no, no, no we were just friends. No, we were only friends. We only want when all of his friends are like, oh, no, he had a crush on her and right. she didn't want anything to do with that. And then now adult Javier is like, no, I definitely wanted more. And I was I was definitely friend zoned like I was, you know, I wanted more and she didn't mm-hmm. in the testimony. And there's and people have mixed feelings on this. And that's why, we, you know, we'll cover all those in the questions. But there was a lot of where I was like, good for you, Javier, like like he's now sure. an adult and he's like, no, I'm not going to lie about this stuff. I'm going to I'm going to set the record straight. But then there's some, you know, obviously the big one is is if he told Robert about the. uh uh, Becky's body burning in a wheelbarrow like that's it's not provable per se that he told Robert but it is provable that he knew about it well before sure. he said he just holds on to that one thing mm-hmm. Zach what what did you think no I you know honestly it was really nice for you to break it down and, and to see in between the lines as you kind of broke down through this where, where we see yes. that where we like we're starting to see that that Javi's getting information from his dad clearly getting information in his dad and, and kind of holding that back. And and then it was nice to see Javi come forward and kind of admit to a few things, you know, the admit to that friend zone, admit to the idea that he really wasn't present during that conversation where Robert right. Christian were coming for the hike, the little things. And then, like I said, we read between the lines and you were able to pick up the nuance of what he was saying and where he was, where he was coming from with the facts and not just, what he wanted to say. I 100% agree with that too, Zach. I like that was something I literally wrote down to say because like normally as like as we mentioned, I have a very sciencey mind. I'm very, you know, want things to be very black and white and I'm very skeptical of drawing any, you know, conclusions from like you know, hearsay or testimony, etc. But everything that you brought up in this episode, like even if I initially thought like, well, maybe that's a stretch, like Whatever you would highlight, you highlighted it so well, the points in the testimony and then how that tied in with some of the other evidence and things we know. It's to really like 
lay that out there for everybody. And I, you, I mean, I was a hundred percent on board with everything that you, all those conclusions that you were making once you sort of laid it out that way. So I did like, that was the part I think that I really enjoyed the most. Like Zach said, we read between the lines, you kind of walked us through that and pointed out to us all of those kind of very key. And it just like, it just felt like everything fit, like the way you put it out. One thing that I'm really happy with this case is it was so confusing and there was so much information for so long. And then as we're getting more, like I feel like Zach and I were just talking about this before we came in to record today that just just like what you just said, Erica, that everything is like it's starting to make sense. The puzzle pieces are starting to fit together. You know, we first read Javier's statements and I'm like, oh, he must be involved. Look, he's lying and he's changing his story and he's not, you know, he's omitting things. And, and then you start to figure out kind of why. And then. You probably didn't notice this because Kelly does such a great job editing, but like this was an unscripted episode. I was just working from notes. Um, so it's a lot of, there was a lot of free flowing thought that was going on there. And it kind of occurred to me in the moment while I was recording, I had almost forgot about the fact that all of his friends said after the murders, remember so many of them said you couldn't even have a conversation with him. He was always drunk. He was always high. And it was to the point where he was, and it's like, oh, that's where, and then he says on the stand that, I knew that I had to try to help police and I was connecting dots. And it's like that it was just for me, that was a light bulb going off. Like that's what was going. It's it's precisely what he said. He's in and out with the drugs and alcohol and he's getting information from lots of different sources. He's trying to figure things out. And then I think what he was doing as a young as a young man was then presenting to police this is what happened when really what it was is this is what I think happened based on all these different things that I heard. Instead of saying someone told me this, he's just saying this happened as though he is the source of that information. But yeah, it's a, a lot of it fits together. And before we get too far ahead of ourselves, Erica, it's it's your time to shine. Hold on. one Before we get to the listener questions, there was one thing that was brought up that you said you're going to address, and I want to get this here. Yes. Is you talked about the Claire phone call to oh, Javi? Yes. So let's let's dive into that real quick before we get into listener questions. Good, because we don't have a question about that. Thanks for reminding me about that. Uh, yeah. So there is no call from Claire on Javier's phone records, but Claire says she called him, and Javier says that he, so when he got up after his mom woke him up, he looked and saw that she had called, which at first seemed like a conflict, but now that we have the extra context of Claire's information where she sounds like Javier told her the phone was off, now I think that it makes sense that he did, in fact, shut his phone off because we know from Claire that she made the call. Because remember back then, like at the time, we were like, why is it that he wakes up and the first call he makes is to Claire? That was one of the things we found to be suspicious. Now we know from Claire that what had happened was his mom woke him up, he turned his phone on, probably had a voicemail from Claire because he said he saw that Claire had called, and then he called Claire back, and the phone records support that. But then that adds in this new layer of where I had said that I think that it shows that Javi that he was upset with Becky, and I think that also explains a lot of what we see about him not saying you know that maybe he's feeling guilty and things like that because you know remember he went all the way all the way up there was planning on going to her house, and then she says no, don't come because Robert's coming, and then nothing, and then he tried calling her. So remember, they don't talk about it at trial, but he also, just after 11 o'clock, called Denny's looking for Becky, mm -hmm. and she wasn't there. And if you think, rather than just looking at like what that data means, but start thinking about like in the mind of a teenager, he admits that he really has a crush on her, and she he's kind of friend-zoned. 
She broke up with Jacob. I think he's in a place where he thinks maybe this is his chance. They're spending more time together. And then she tells him, no, I'm not, you know, I don't want you to come because Robert's coming. And then he calls work and finds out she doesn't go to work. I think that, you know, I don't, I don't think he was like, oh, something bad happened to her. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably she skipped work to spend the night with Robert or something, you know, something mm-hmm. along those lines and shut her, shut her phone off. Well, I was going to say, I agree wholeheartedly. That's what I took out of that was, was thinking about him being upset, mad at Becky, you know, that she, he's in love with her. And now she's spending this evening with this other guy, regard, if it's Robert or somebody else, mm-hmm. she's spending this evening with another guy. So he's upset. He turns his phone off. He's like, fuck her. I don't want to, I don't want to talk to her. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and Montana in the, in the chat makes a good point where she says, shouldn't that have shown as a call that didn't connect and went to voicemail? I don't know, Montana, because we don't see that, you know, it's a different carrier than Verizon. So I don't know if, if that shows differently on the report so so that's a good point i guess there is still some ambiguity there because you know it doesn't show that someone tried to call and his phone and phone was off and it went to voicemail i don't know if it would with i'm trying to remember if he had i think he had was it becky had t-mobile and he had singular as was one of the other one of the other carriers what we can say is this it tracked with claire saying i called him his phone was off and then he called me back and then him saying I got up, saw that I had missed a call from Claire, and called her back. Those two things definitely do fit together. So just to clarify, because I think that was part of what you were uncertain of in the episode, was that Claire did say she called Avi that morning. She did. What I didn't remember was if we saw that call on Javier's records. And then when I when I went back and looked, it's definitely not on the records. So, and I don't know because uh, Montana says again, what if it came from a landline? I don't. I, I unfortunately I don't know the answer to that, Montana. How it would work with a different carrier and how their reports work? Yeah, same same to Tracy. We sounds like we just can't know that information right now, if ever, unfortunately. So, I guess with that, are we ready to dive into some of these questions? Anything? Yep, else let's do it. Nope, let's go. Excellent. All right. So first, we'll kind of start the first question we're starting with is sort of going back to the interview with Corey um, at his home that I believe if I'm remembering correctly, his mom was also present for. Um, And so Denise is so this is still relating to Javi. Um, Denise asks, uh, I know that Javi isn't a suspect because of his alibi. I just keep going back to where he was hiding in the closet of his friend Corey when the police came to interview Corey. Why would Javi hide in the closet? So I guess just kind of revisiting that. We haven't talked about it in a while. Yeah. And and I want to point, and we talked about this a while back, but to come back, you know, what it, it seemed to me initially was that he was hiding in the closet because you hear the officers go into Corey's house, into his room. They don't see him. Kind of where else could he be? With the It could be the closet. Uh, but that's the only place you think he could, because I bet, like we've seen video of Corey's room, or I've seen videos of his room, and there's really nowhere else to be. But to be clear, and I, I clarified this a while back, it, it really wasn't fair for me to say he was hiding in a closet because I don't know that. All we know is that he was in the house, and the way Corey brought it up was, you know, he's like, "Well, he was in the house. I thought you guys saw him." So it didn't seem to him that he was hiding. So we don't really know that he was hiding, or just that they didn't see him. Yeah, Leanne just followed up about the alibi. So um, can we clarify, did we disprove that? Yeah, she asked if his um, alibi was disproved. And no, it wasn't. I mean, his, he has, his phone is in use and, and hitting towers down in the valley 
during the times of the murders. Like there's there's no when because back at the time when when he when we saw all these inconsistencies, I really thought he was a suspect. But it was like any way you shake it, there's just no unless unless it was so complex where he gave somebody else his phone to use it during the murders. His phone very much seems to alibi him, and I think that it does. Yeah, I agree. Okay, moving on. So going back towards more specifics about this trial testimony and what was discussed in this episode, Christina asks, did Javi's dad work at the DA's office at the time of the trial? Asking this question because of the idea that Javi was covering for his dad by saying he got the information about the wheelbarrow from Tiffany. I've been trying to figure this out. I I talked to someone who knows him and knows the case and was told that he retired around that time, but they couldn't confirm. Then I started looking. I tried. I, so maybe if somebody else can can is better at Googling than me. But I tried looking up Javier Garcia Sr., retires, retires Riverside County, retires district attorney's office. And I didn't see any like articles that came up to mm-hmm. confirm that. So all I know is he retired around that time. Either uh, it sounds like he did work for the new DA. And he may have retired either right before the trial or right after the trial, somewhere around there. But I haven't been able to confirm that. So I guess either way, depending on which way we land on that, how do you think that that would like affect sort of our interpretation of Javi potentially lying to protect his dad? If he was working at the time or wasn't working, like if he wasn't working, do you think do we think that's not an issue then or? I think that because some people brought that up and there are people in the chat right now mentioning it. If certainly if he was still working for the DA, finding out during the trial that he gave critical case information to somebody would get him in trouble. Definitely. But I think that even if he's not, there's still his career and his reputation. And certainly he even if he was retired, he would have a relationship with the district attorney and to find out that all of a sudden they go to trial and their case gets blown. And it turns out it's because he shared information way back when would still be a problem. So essentially, and somebody somebody had said it in the in the chat. I think Bernie in chat says that they doubt that Javi would ever be comfortable sharing that he got that information from his dad. And, and I think that could be true. Yeah, I agree. And even his dad could still be telling him, like, "Look, you can't talk about this." <laughs> so he yeah, could still be getting some of that pressure. So then we'll move on to talking about the business card. And this is where what I kind of mentioned earlier about the DNA go into that a little bit. Jason had asked, would two inches of rain two weeks prior to finding the business card affect the DNA and fingerprint on the card? Well, that depends on a whole lot of a whole lot of factors. So it's hard to say. But also, I'll point out that what I think happened is that card was probably in a pocket of someone who was out there when they dug that tree up out there, you know, so which, which we think to me, based on the tracks, looks like it was done, you know, within a couple of days after that rain and the degradation that they're talking about, they were talking about if it had been out, like basically what the sun and UV rays and stuff would do to DNA over time when they're talking about on the stand of the state's expert about degradation. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it has any effect on it at all, especially if, if when it got there was when, Someone was out there two weeks earlier digging up a tree. Right. I was going to say, just from my experience, you know, yes, water damage or water can damage DNA. But right. Was, we don't even know if the card was out there at that point or where, you know, there's so many variables. 
But going kind of on this DNA train of thought, at one point in the episode, really early on in the episode, you said that the DNA on the business card shows that at some point in time, Christian touched that card. And I actually wanted to point out that that's not technically true. That is one possibility. Christian touched the card. But there's also a very significant possibility for secondary or tertiary transfer of DNA, which could end up, right. his DNA could end up on that card with absolute, without, well, without him ever having touched that. I um, participated in a bunch and ran a bunch of studies and research projects in grad school about t- transfer DNA. And we were, we used this experiment with like, plastic knives where we had somebody handle the knife for a few times, a couple days, and then shake somebody else's hand and use that knife to stab into some styrofoam. And then we swapped the knives. And in three quarters of those knives, there were two profiles. And in over half of them, there were even more alleles that couldn't be, couldn't be tied to either of those two people. So that's the tertiary transfer. So that's somebody in their house or somewhere they touched, they picked up somebody's DNA and then they touched this knife and whatever and used it. And now that person's DNA can be detected on that knife. And we should we should point out, can you can you share with people that like you're not just <sighs> talking offhand like this is what you do for a living. You explain to people what you do. By no means am I qualified to be a forensic DNA expert in court. Um, I have worked in forensic DNA a little bit during grad school. I have a master's in human biology through that program. I did a lot of forensic work. A lot of forensic anthropology, um, so mostly working with skeletal remains and the analysis of skeletal remains, but I also was the forensic DNA laboratory graduate assistant there, um, and so that's where I had the opportunity to work, um, do conduct some research and work on some of those projects there. So, yes, not an expert by any means, but just speaking from my own uh, studies and personal experience and what I know, um, tertiary, secondary and tertiary transfer is sort of a new-ish discussion in the field of DNA. But it is very much so throwing all DNA interpretation for a loop. And so I think this just adds to your conclusion. Basically, the DNA on the card is essentially irrelevant at this point. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, and and the big thing, and I also want to point out, too, I guess why we, why we, we have you here that can answer, like, Montana again in chat says, you know, a big issue that she has as far as you know what I was presenting as a theory that it could have been dropped out there when they were um, moving that tree. So, but the card doesn't have Becky's DNA. So actually, in my study, after a week, just a week, we did we swabbed some knives an hour after the stabbing, and then we did some a week later, uh, different knives, uh, just to see what happened. And after just a week, the secondary person, the handshaker 
their profile was the dominant profile. The one that never actually touched it. Exactly. Right. And in this case, there were some minor contributors that were not they, right. they didn't have not enough information to identify. And then I see in here somebody says um, Stephanie indicated it was touch. Yes, and not transfer. I was going to talk about that, Montana. So touch touch DNA is just an old term. Uh, we're, we we use transfer DNA now because we understand a lot more about it. It used to be called touch. It's essentially we're talking about the same process. It's, it's coming from the same source, either skin cells or sweat. So I don't know who Stephanie is, but also my understanding is you can't. Like even with the old terminology of touch, meaning I touched it, transfer, meaning I touched something and then that person touched it. There's no way to tell that, is there? No. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way you can tell the difference. There are. You can t You can do – and again, this is not my area of expertise, but you can do statistical tests to, to um, generate likelihood ratios of like who was the dominant contributor, who was a secondary contributor. So you can essentially potentially put a, a number on it like it's the, it's – you know, seventy percent likely that this was the this the primary contributor is this person, but you know it's very it's just so variable with when it comes to touch or tra touch slash transfer DNA. Yeah, and the point I was making in the episode too was that you know th this all comes down to we have a very mobile op we have we the thing we found the DNA on or that they found the DNA on is an object that by nature is passed between people and moved around. Mm -hmm. And stuck in pockets where you can even have DNA from the manufacturer of the genes. That's been shown. Yes. Yeah. So the, so the, it's it, it's not something as as compared to, say, like the, the DNA on the side. They're, they're on Becky's sock. Now, there's still the thing you just mentioned. There are still possibilities that it could be from manufacturer or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's something that is like, if it's not from a manufacturer or somebody, if it's somebody that we find is like local or is a violent offender of some kind or something, but that's DNA on the body in a place where the killers would have touched the body. Right. So you can you you can there's a much more likelihood that that is connected to the crime as and opposed can, to. And that's where generating those likelihood ratios probably especially and this would be something that maybe would be a great question for whoever, you know, analyze those or if we do you have those electropharograms from the that i think they're in the i yeah they're probably in the file that i gave but i wouldn't even know what i was looking at right right so you but you could consult with somebody um my mm -hmm. advisor in grad school that's kind of what she she does on forensic dna cases essentially like again it's so variable so it's hard to really say anything for definitively but like if somebody grabbed that sock their dna is most likely going to be on there a lot more than any extraneous alleles from a manufacturer or something like that that's going to pop up as like one allele at this locus and one over here it, you're not going to get alleles at all 20 lo loci or however many they use you're it's just going to be every once in a while you see like a third allele so that's so you can't rule out like a secondary contributor so you should be able to say like this dna is like there's a much higher quantity or, or not quantify it that so much and in this case that dna that's found on the on the socks they were extreme like and i look back at it again i don't really know what i'm looking at but what i see is that every loci there's there's pairs mm -hmm. at every single loci and, and what the way Susanna ryan told us was like this is a very strong profile mm -hmm. and 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 even being from the manufacturer like even if it had been through the laundry once it's a, especially as a white you know or as a black socks it wouldn't be bleached but that's going to degrade it even further yeah for sure 
the fact that it's such a solid profile seems unlikely that it just got picked up by a manufacturer. Exactly. exactly. I would 100% agree with that. And yeah, I, that's that's kind of what I was trying to say is that the experts who do this work and testify about it in court, they are able to kind of look at an electropharogram and see those things. Yeah. And just I, I really didn't plan to talk this much about the business card, but with, with you here. No, it's great. You're here and, you, and you're, you're actually having That was my some, rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of check on the in in YouTube and this I've on this interesting I didn't know this because I'm not a marijuana smoker but there's people in there saying that they use business cards as filters. Uh, oh. I'm not going to say their names, but some of the people said there are regular marijuana smokers. One person says regular weed smoker here. We use business cards as filters all the time. So that's something to think about when you have someone who is uh, a known marijuana user and Becky regularly. And we have a business card, but you know, again, it doesn't have her DNA on it, but it could be the reason why she has it. Who knows? Yeah, sure. All right. So yes, uh, we've talked about the business card a lot, so we can move on from that. Chris, we had a few questions from Chris. The first being, you played the Jim, Randy, and Barbara interviews in preparation of the hobby testimony. How were those two fit together? The reason I did that is because when I was reading through Javier's testimony, when I was first prepping for his episode, I saw that he said that specifically that he hung around the crime scene for one to two hours after his interview that morning and that he was standing with all the neighbors. So then I wanted to go see, okay, well, he was standing there with all the neighbors talking. I want to know what what of those neighbors might have had that information. And so that's why I went back to them to see. Was that being discussed amongst the neighbors in that group where Javier was said that he was hanging out? And what we heard was that's, that's exactly what they were talking about. Um, okay. And then Chris also had to to say, you keep saying Bodmer's drive test is invalid. But during the Friday follow-up recorded in Cali, you state all it proves is that Bodmer could drive it in X minutes or that you and Shiloh could drive it in X minutes. Why the difference? Well, it's easy because we haven't we hadn't analyzed the sector data yet. The big reason that I said is the reason that it is invalid now is because we now know that the the 1023 voicemail check connected to Tower 88 Sector 1, which points east-southeast from the tower, and that sector doesn't cover, even if you look at um, the Gladiator maps, doesn't cover the route that Bodmer took in his drive test. That's why it's invalid, because he said, yes, they could have gotten to this coverage area in this amount of time on the way to Christians via this route. And now we know, well, he didn't just connect to Tower uh, Tower 88. He t- connected to Tower 88 Sector 1 that doesn't have coverage on that route. That's why it's invalid. Okay. Shiloh mentioned in the Just Us follow-up how hard it is to really determine if someone is lying, yet you put a lot of emphasis on Robert and Christian's seeming truth-telling. Uh, you know, can we address that maybe an inconsistency in saying it's harder to say is that somebody's lying, but then here you think they're telling the truth. Yeah, it's not inconsistent at all. What she was talking about was when people watch videos of people, the, the air quotes like human lie detectors, they're you know touching their chest so they're lying, or they're looking up into the left so they're lying, things like that. That's not what we're doing here. We're taking actual tangible evidence and comparing it to the statements. So Robert, you know, and this isn't just a Robert thing. I've said this all along. You always want to go to the first, the closest interview to the time it happened, that's where you're going to get the most accurate information before 
not only do memories fade, but but false memories are created, and and you know, you start as Javi put it, connecting dots that shouldn't probably be connected. And so we go back to Robert's interview. He says, "I talked to Becky. Christian came over. We decided to go to church. We called Sacred Heart Church on the way. Found out that there was no that we had already missed the service. So then we went back to Christian's house, and then we went to James Workman Middle School. We messed with the paintball." And uh, paintball gun, and then I saw my cousin wanted me to get chapstick, so we went to the AMPM gas station, and then I went home. So then that, so that's the story. Then we take and look at the cell phone sector data, and we see Christian on the move at six forty-five. We see the two of them have left Robert's house at six fifty-three. We see at seven o'clock, Robert calls four one one, and at seven seven o one. He calls the Sacred Heart Church. We know based on the sector data and the route and the timing where he was at when he did that. Then we see uh, the call from Sam Sam Gayer where they talk on the phone. We interview Sam. What Sam say they were talking about? The paintball gun and that they were about to go shoot paintball. The route showed. Then we've got the 713 connection that shows they passed the, the entrance to Highway 74. They were to the east of it, headed back towards Christian's house. Then the next time we have cell phone connection – is on Tower 88 Sector 1, which covers James Workman Middle School. Then 20 minutes after that, we show Robert back to his house. These are not me trying to be a human lie detector. It's taking the tangible evidence of the sector data and comparing it to what was actually said and finding out that literally every single word he said was true. And that goes even further beyond that when he's interviewing and talking about things like the wheelbarrow, which is what we're discussing today. He says, yeah, Javier called me in the morning because Becky had told him that uh, that I was going to go for a hike, and I told him that I ended up not going. I canceled on the on the hike, and then Javier called me back several times throughout the day as he got more information. Then we go back to the phone records. We see Javier calling him, Javier calling him again. Javier, we have the, the space and time where we know Javier went to the crime scene. We see that Javier left the crime scene, and then he, we see Javier talks to his dad, and then we see Javier calls Robert again, and then he calls him again. Literally every single piece of tangible evidence that we have corroborates 100%. There's not a single thing that can be disproven that Robert said based on any of the evidence, especially all this phone evidence that he didn't know existed. That's a very different thing than being able to tell if someone lied because they looked up when they were answering a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be a crazy coincidence if he happened to tell a story that fits exactly with the, the perfect evidence. story. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, so kind of moving on from that topic and going into some of the more, some some sort of kind of random little details that we touched on throughout the episode before we really get into the wheelbarrow. It looks like we had a couple questions sort of along the same train of thought. Uh, Robin had asked, how did Javier have Robert's phone number? They weren't friends and hadn't spoken since high school. I have 982 contacts in my phone. That's how. Yeah. Yep. I'm friends with 12 of those people. <laughs> it's it's a thing. You know, since we have people have had cell phones, when you call somebody for any time, any reason, any at any point, you generally, most people, save the contact into their phone. So just because I have someone's phone number doesn't mean I'm their friend. There, there are literally hundreds of people in there that are just people that I know that I've contacted or called at one time or another for some reason mm-hmm. that I have in my phone. And I imagine, too, it'd probably be pretty easy for him to get it. I mean, he talked to Claire that morning, and she might have had it, or 
you know, I don't know, you know, how close everybody was and how everybody's specific friendships within the gr- big group, but I'm sure it would have been pretty easy for him to get it if he didn't have it. Well, and the other thing that they just said, they said they haven't talked to Robert since he was in high school. Well, that wasn't that far like three ago. months ago. Yeah, that wasn't that long ago for them. <laughs> now, we say that present day for us thinking that's 25 years ago, 20 years ago. Right. It was months ago. You know, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a totally different thing. Yeah. Alex kind of had a similar vein of thought. So in the episode, there's a large emphasis on the fact that Javier told Robert about Becky being in a wheelbarrow. But then at the same time, you make the statement that Javier barely knew Robert. In fact, they were so unacquainted that Becky, who was close to both of them, didn't even think they knew each other. Can you reconcile those two things? I just can't imagine someone divulging this type of information to someone they barely knew. And I honestly, I kind of, that, I did think, have that thought. I don't know if where I ended up on the spectrum of agreeing with it, but I definitely had that thought. Makes perfect sense to me because... So the last thing Javier the last thing Javier knows is that he was told not to go up to Becky's house because Robert was coming. Then the first thing he finds out in the morning is that there's a fire up there and something has happened and he can't get a hold of Becky. So he calls the first person he knows that may know something is Robert. So so there's there's first of all why call why share the information? I don't know. Listen to every single person that was interviewed by the police. That tells them there was a there was a hike planned and and there was a body in a wheelbarrow and then every time the investigators go oh wait wait, wait how do you know that and what is what do every single one of them say Javier told me mm-hmm. like so so on black and white and paper you're like they're not friends why would he divulge this top secret information in reality it's a teenager who's panicked and his best friend. Is dead. Then, then he then he talks to his dad, who he admits his dad told him that it was a triple homicide on his way down the mountain. So he he knows she's dead now, mm-hmm. and he's just talking to anybody who will listen to tell about it. And I'm sure Robert is saying like, and he, keep in mind, he didn't say we didn't like each other, right? He just said we just hung out sometimes. We 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 talked in school, and we never hung out outside of school. But then now he's talking to Robert. You don't think Robert's saying, "What the hell happened? What do you know?" I think of of course he he would he would be if if, it, if his dad had to it would be like, "I just talked to my dad and, the, and I don't know all I know is there was a young woman's body found in a wheelbarrow and there's two bodies inside the house that were burned so bad that they couldn't tell the sex." Mm-hmm. Like he's just trying to like it seems to me that Robert and Javier bonded over this thing because they're both like, "What what is going on? What happened?" Right. Both of them had plans to be there that night, and both of them ended up not going, and then she ends up dead. So they're both they're both very invested in it. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, going to some, some discussion in the chat, going back to a little bit about how Javier may have gotten Robert's number. Something that I forget about all the time is that we used to all get phone books in the mail, and you had a book in your house where you could just look up anybody's phone number, and it was that easy. So that's a very good point, guys, Um, especially back then. That would have been much more common. So Jenny has asked, is it possible that all of the reason Hobby seemed to be pointing the finger at Robert was because he was worried that Jacob might be a suspect? So maybe redirecting the attention of the police. No. I don't, and I say that because I don't think Rob, I don't think Javier was trying to throw Robert under the bus. Like you know, like he's he's pretty clear. If you go back through all of his statements with police, all he's saying is, 
Robert planned to go on a hike, which is the same thing Robert told him. Mm -hmm. And then he says, Robert said he didn't go. I don't know if he went or not. He said he didn't go. And then the the question about did you tell Robert about the, the wheelbarrow, he was never asked that until trial. He was only asked, where did you get that information? Mm-hmm. And he, so, so I don't think that him saying, oh, Tiffany told me that on the 21st, I don't, you know, I, I don't think either back then or even at trial, I don't, th- I don't think that he was thinking, well, I, I want them to think that Robert has this guilty knowledge. I don't think that's what he was doing at all. His dad told him some information and told him, I'm not allowed to share this, so don't tell anybody that. So he was just not admitting. And again, when you re- look at his, his September 25th statement, he slips up and says it. He's, 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 he says, where did you get that? My dad. My dad told me that. Oh, wait. No, no. Tiffany. I got that from Tiffany. Like he, he slips up and, and, and again, I made the point and I, and I'm very confident in this. The information Robert had is information only someone who had investigated the crime after the fact could know. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't think that, I don't think we even need to explore why he's trying to point the finger at Robert because I don't think he ever did point the finger at Robert. Even when he's testifying, I don't think he is aware of the fact that by not saying, by not admitting that his dad gave him that information, that the prosecutor was later going to use that to present to the jury that Robert had guilty knowledge. Yeah, and that seems like an awful lot of like forethought to be happening so soon after the murders occurred to be like, oh, I better start doing things now to bring the attention off of Jacob. Yeah. That seems very sophisticated. And and there was certainly he definitely was defensive of it. If you remember when they said, who do you think did this? The first thing he said was, well, I know it wasn't Jacob. Mm-hmm. I know it wasn't my cousin. It's true. Yeah. But I don't think that has anything to do with with Robert. I mean, he again, if you look at his actual words, not our perceptions, he'd never actually pointed any fingers at Robert. Okay. I agree with that as well. Ethan, kind of, again, just sort of we're just digging through all of these little question marks that I think some of us had throughout the testimony. So what are the main reasons that you don't think Javi is a potential suspect anymore? You mentioned that in the episode. Um, And are you even ruling him out as an after the fact accomplice? Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I am. So for, first of all, as we mentioned, his phone records alibi him. Flatly. He was in the valley at the time of the murders, or at least his phone was in the valley being used at the time of the murders. 
as far as him being an accessory, no. When I really look at his behaviors, and again, part of that is like Claire adding some extra context to things by saying that she had called him that morning. Now all of a sudden waking up and the first call being to Claire. Because that did look suspicious. Definitely, yeah. Right. Like, why did he wake up and call Claire and ask about Becky when he didn't know anything had happened? That's mm-hmm. his first contact. But now when Claire says, no, I had already called him first. And then we see – so he, he calls Claire. He tries calling Becky. And then he tries calling Becky's. I think he tries calling her home. He tries calling her cell phone. Then he calls, well, who was the last person I knew she was with? It was Robert. A lot of things depend on – and we try not to put lenses on. But but if you're looking at things from a from through a, a suspicious lens, without the the Claire call, you can you can say, well, this looks weird. But then, and then you could you can you could you could spin that in your mind, right? Like, well, yeah, he's calling her because he's trying to make it look like he doesn't know she's alive. If you take that lens off and just look at what we see here, and even I'll do this, look, do the opposite. Go ahead and put an innocent lens on and see if that makes sense. You know, use the scientific method. I have a theory. I think he's innocent. So if I think he's innocent, how does the evidence compare to that? Mm-hmm. You see a kid who's panicked. You see a kid who I think feels guilty. You know, they were there was probably a little more to that 640 call than, okay, I'll go home. My guess is there was probably a bit of maybe an argument on the, at that point. Looks like he tried to call her later and maybe he tried to make up and she didn't even go to work and he was pissed off and he shut his phone off. And then all of a sudden something's happened. I think he's scared and he's panicked and he just lost his best friend and he's trying to find answers. That's what I see from Javier. I don't see anything. And now that we have the full picture of the case, that's, that's all, that's all I see with him is that he's just, he's, he's, he's lost his friend and he's trying to figure out if one, he actually did lose her or he's still holding on to hope that she's still around and he's trying to figure out what the hell happened. I definitely agree. And I think a lot of people in the chat are kind of all coming to that same sort of conclusion. So we can move on from Javi being a potential suspect. Sarah has asked, which I think is a a good question. I don't know if we'll be, I hope you'll be able to answer it, but we'll see. How early was Alan Gerber telling his friends about the body in the wheelbarrow? Does he have any law enforcement connections? I don't know if he has any law enforcement connections, but he Corey Donovan said that Alan Gerber told him about the body in the wheelbarrow on that morning on, or on that day on the 18th because Alan Gerber lived up in the area and his dad had gone up to the crime scene. So he was one of the neighbors that were all standing there talking about it. Right. So that's probably whether he was connected to law enforcement or not, he probably would have had that information. From his dad, regardless. Well, and I think being in that area, that's that's a hot topic. I mean, it's right there. Everybody right. can see it. They're going to talk about it. And 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 to be to be clear about that, the fact that there was a body in the wheelbarrow, I think Javi, I guarantee, I can almost guarantee you heard that that day up on the crime scene from all those people. But the bigger point is what Robert shared or what Robert told police was more than that. And it wasn't, and I hope everybody got what I was doing when I showed you what a guilty knowledge would sound like from like what Javier said compared to what Robert, you know, Robert described things that people up there, he described things that the killer wouldn't know and couldn't know, but also that the people just up there on the crime scene couldn't know. He was describing things that only, in a, because it doesn't really matter, right? All that really matters is that Javier did in fact know on the 18th when he called Robert, when he came back down the hill. 
that there was a body in the wheelbarrow. That's all that really matters. But when we're trying to figure out like what what really happened here, we find out that 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 Robert has information that only an investigator knows. And then and somebody Montana in the chat, Montana's first. I keep saying Montana in the chat. She's very active. She or he, I don't know, or they, whoever Montana is. Uh, that Corey and Javier were were best friends. That's true. So that so he says he heard it from Alan Gerber, whose dad was up there on the crime scene, and that very well may be true. Also, could be that if if Corey and Javier are best friends, and Javier's dad told him that information, and then Javier told Corey, and he said, "Don't tell him that you heard it from my dad." You know, the Corey could be lying about that to protect his dad. We don't know. Sure. Well, do you think it could be the other channel? The other way, maybe that's what Montana's getting at, is if is if Alan heard it from if Corey heard it from Alan, then relays it to Javi. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And and yeah, there are about forty five ways that Javier could and should have had that information that day. Exactly. So okay, so Nancy has asked if Javi's phone was off. I believe that Bob is right that he was upset with Becky, as we talked about earlier. Um, Javi spent every waking hour wanting to talk to Becky, so why turn his phone off? She may have needed a place to sleep or a ride. And I think that just is kind of following up what we already discussed about maybe there was a fight. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, he just didn't want to talk to her anymore. Yeah, I think she kind of answers her own question, right? If they had fought, then maybe that's why he turned his phone off, because he's like, you know, don't go spend all night with Robert and then call me because you want a place to stay. There's plenty of reason. I'm just, there's plenty of re- reasons why he would have shut his phone off. Okay, and then we have a question from Teresa, who I assume is our the Teresa's always contributing lots of good stuff to these follow-ups. Focusing on the piece of info that is harder to know, which would be the condition of the two bodies that were found inside, essentially as you talked about in the episode, they were, you know, burnt so badly that they could not tell the sex. That was kind of that guilty knowledge um that you mentioned that Javier seemed to know. Teresa's asking, who knew that and when? Robert knows about the wheelbarrow, which we know many people knew by Monday. Who Nobody knew. So the, the, the condition of the bodies in the house were not shared publicly. I don't know if they was ever shared publicly. I think at some point they came out with the fact that they were shot. But the police kept this information pretty close to the vest. I mean, there's interviews in this file where, there's, where they're just calling like John's family trying to get DNA samples and stuff. And they're asking... What happened? And they're like, oh, we haven't identified the bodies yet. And they're like, well, we heard this. And he's like, I can't confirm anything like that. Nobody – like that only could have come from the people that were in law enforcement. Okay. So then let's see. Yeah, we've just got a few more questions, um, which I think some of these last ones are really good ones to kind of mull over. So Chris had asked, how, do, how did Javier not remember what time Becky worked but remembered a specific lie that he told to the investigators? Why is it that you seem so willing to believe Javier Javier was initially lying, but not lying in 2017? When it comes to Javier and your feelings, they seem to really contradict themselves, or at least the logic. If Javier completely denies getting the body in the wheelbarrow information from his dad and wouldn't have heard it otherwise, wouldn't that constitute guilty knowledge by his own words and admission? There's a lot to unpack. Yeah. But there, as far as the, the, the main point of that question, what seems to be inconsistent, it's very consistent. What have I told you guys for for twelve seasons on this podcast? When, especially when time passes, specific dates and times without anchors are useless. 
They've ne- and it doesn't matter who says it. If somebody tells you 12 years later, uh, yeah, she was going to work at 11 o'clock. I can't just like, you know, we heard from the boss, you know, the manager Eddie's like, I think she started at nine or maybe it was 10 or whatever. Like, I can't use that because it's too, too much time had passed. So in one, you're talking about a specific time of what time she went to work. And he's like, I don't remember that. The other is a significant event, especially when you tap into the, the, the affective kind of learning domain of your brain, uh, which, you know, anything that is attached to a, 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 an emotion and telling a big lie to police is going to generate that emotion is going to cement that memory. Yeah. So like, like, like there's a big, 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 big difference between knowing what time her shift started 11 years later and specifically making a choice to lie about something to investigators and probably feeling guilty about it for years after that's not that's not a detail that's not what color someone's shirt was those were remembering your own actions those are so it's not inconsistent in logic it's very consistent they're just two very different things yep 100% agree i had the same exact thought i mean even not just that he felt guilty about lying maybe but i have to bet that he probably felt real nervous after you know in the heat of everything the day after he was calling yeah. all these people and telling them all these things and then probably when things calmed down he's probably thinking oh crap like i totally told all these people this stuff that i should not have told them and if this comes back to mm-hmm. me or my dad like that's gonna be really bad i could get in trouble etc cetera, etc cetera. so like again like that whether he even felt guilty about lying or not, like to me, he probably had to be feeling some pressure there, some some anxiety about that coming big out, time, you know, and and things he omitted, right? Because right. one thing we forget about yeah. is his mother was a state assembly woman who had a lot of connections with law enforcement, and he had conversations with his mother before he ever even went up there. So when a lot of people are like, "Well, he omitted the fact when he just said, oh, I was just up there driving around. I wasn't going up there," you know. That could even come from fear. If his mom's like, "What the hell? You said you were going up there yesterday. You better not. Did you do that? You better not. Ha- you know. I mean, to freak right, him out to right. where, and the cops are like, "Where are you at?" And he's like, "I was just driving. I wasn't even. No, I wasn't even planning on going up there." Mm-hmm. And again, I would focus more on that if his phone didn't show that he wasn't up there. Right. Okay. Just a couple more questions, real quick. Um, Kara asked, "Can you go deeper into how immunity would matter for Hobby lying to the police?" By that time, the statute of limitations on lying to the police, making a false police statement, should have expired, and his dad would know that. I know we've kind of touched on this, but well, it it is very specifically saying so. It's been at the time it had been eight years at the point where he asked for immunity to do grand jury testimony, mm-hmm. and the point is, you know, the statute of limitations on what that crime would have been if it was lying to police would be passed by then. Mm-hmm. Javi's dad works for DA's office, and I've dealt with this with jailhouse snitches recanting and thing, and other people recanting. Troy Eldridge is a good example. What you have to, what you don't realize is it depends when the prosecutor claims you're lying. So in this case, him saying that, uh, say, you know, I wasn't that, you know, I didn't actually hear that 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 conversation. If he's setting the record straight there, well, that's hurting the state's case. So oftentimes what I'm not saying this one did, but what I've I've seen documented in some DAs, it it happened with Kenny Snow, is they straight up told him, if you say that, we're going to charge you with aggravated perjury. Not on the actual lie that he told years before, but them claiming what he's saying now is a lie. 
because it, they don't want him to say it because it hurts their case. Right, right. So in his case, so if Javi had gone up and testified uh, at the grand jury, now remember by trial, Zeller, it's Zeller uh, um, Hester now. It's a different district attorney, but the one that happened, it was at that time. Uh, if he had gone up and said, no, I did not hear that phone conversation, and Zellerbach said, that's perjury, you said this before, and now you're saying this, if he claimed that this was the lie, then the statute of limitations doesn't stand. And you don't know what they're going to do, but if there are like threats around or if there's pressure, which I suspect pressure coming from the district attorney to get you to testify the way they want you to testify. We already know that that Zellerbach was a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was like he he yeah. lost the ele- yeah. I mean, yeah. Is it, is it is it shady that his own guy was following him around, filming him stealing campaign signs? Yeah, but also he was driving around stealing his opponent's campaign signs, and his opponent had a reason to think that he was driving around stealing campaign signs. Precisely right. So if there's you know if there was any kind of pressure being put on. Then I could see just just saying we want to he'll testify, but he gets immunity for anything he he can't be charged for anything he says on the stand. And again, because that means he can't be charged for what he's saying then. Mm-hmm. Right. So the immunity doesn't actually isn't isn't for what he said in 2006. The immunity is for what he's saying in 2014. So the statute of limitations doesn't matter. And this may be a stupid question, but. Can you even be charged with perjury for statements made during a police interview? That's not like under under oath, like we think about in a court where you you know swear on a Bible, right? So I don't. That might be a really stupid question, but to, as like yeah, they can. They have to make a case for it. It's it's not black right. and white. It's not like it's not like the prosecutor says you're lying. You're charged. You go to jail for perjury. They would have just like any other crime. They would have to bring up charge them with perjury, and then use that other police interview as evidence to support their claim. Right, to support the claim if he, that he's lying now. But I'm saying, like, if right. could they even go back and say, you lied back then, and so we're going to charge you with perjury because that wasn't even Oh, from that one? No, oath. they could charge yeah. him. They could charge him with, you know, in, you know interfering with, interfering with police investigation yeah, and stuff like that. But okay. but that's not wasn't on the table. It was what he was going to say that day that mattered. Makes sense. Yep. Okay, and then our last question is from Jason, who asked, did the defense counsel point out the timeline issues with Javi supposedly hearing from Tiffany, despite not meeting her until the 21st, and with Jacob telling police on the 20th that he'd heard it, and that's referring to the information about there being a body in a wheelbarrow. Jacob had told police that he heard that from Javier. So essentially just the timeline issue that you sort of pointed out where... Javi didn't actually know Tiffany yet, yet he's saying she's the source of that information. Did the defense catch on to They that? didn't because it's not like on TV. You can't bring the t- – Jacob didn't testify. So that, you know, they, they, they can't with Javier, you know, on, on Law and Order, they might, they might be like, well, isn't it true that your cousin told police that on the 20th that you can't do that? You have to have ha- Jacob on the stand testify to that and then there was and and then there was all kinds of issues with that because of the whole third-party culpability thing the state was like fighting against every little thing even for example when dolan mentioned nick corline's red truck it was whoa object mm-hmm. bench conference you can't do that because it's implying that someone else might have done this right 
and they weren't allowed to do that. Right. Uh, so good, good questions. Uh, YouTube chat, you guys have been on fire today. Thank you guys so much. Um, great questions, great discussions there. And as always, amazing questions. And, and Erica, you did great. Thank you. Were, <laughs> Thank I, we you. so appreciate you filling in. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Yep. And uh, next time, uh, Jack or Zanet. <laughs> one of us yeah. one of us I'll fill our our missing will definitely tap into follow you and i can tell from the youtube chat everybody loved you on the show too so uh with that we're gonna wrap things up and uh, again remember if you guys want to come up to i know it has nothing to do with truth and justice but we zach and i have been doing these these comedy shows and we have one coming up in uh uh april fool's day in michigan southwest michigan if you want to come go to bobruffevents.com if you want to get in on that and in sunday's episode we're going to continue on uh, looking into the elements of the state's case against Robert and Christian. And sadly, if, if, if you're not convinced now, there's not much left. Uh, we're going to be covering this week the confidential informant, Jeremy Witt, who testified that Christian confessed to him. So that'll be coming up this Sunday. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap things up and we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by me, and all of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Follow our personal accounts on social media. I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24 7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269 224 2833. However, you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been. 
and justice. laughing because the part that you met that kept tripping i know was that i was like oh, this is such a it's, <laughs> it's hard, really hard to, hard to get that out, one out. choke that one out hard to get that one out but <laughs> this week that fucking dipshit told us this and i can't fucking believe him but we're gonna talk about it so here we go why am i doing a bit let me start over kelly we're gonna start over it's not a funny i'm really excited that janet's gone that's what that sounded <laughs> yeah. like that's the kind of shit that you say during the Patreon, not during the show. So, With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 